Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. This is Dan Lebetard. Many years ago when I was writing for ESPN, the magazine, I remember this distinctly. Edger and James was coming out of college, did not trust a single soul, looked across the media landscape and said, okay, this guy's from Miami and he is Cuban. He will do. I will tell him my story even though I don't trust anybody and even though no one in the media looks like me. And I remember thinking to myself, I have nothing in common with Edger and James. I don't know why he would choose me to go, you know, to Bell Glade and hang out in his car and watch Scarface on the television, on the dashboard of his Mercedes in a totally impoverished area. But he chose a journalist that was close enough. And by that, I mean, not close at all. So anyways, I tell you all of this as an introduction to Master Tesfatsian. He is doing work for Bleacher Report. He went the traditional path of traditional journalism, newspapers, the Washington Post, but found a different path for himself at Bleacher Report and now has a series called Untold Stories that is very sugar, very sticky, because he gets players to tell honest stories that you might not hear anywhere else because it's a relaxed environment that's a little closer to home for them than most of the environments where they're interviewed in. So here is Master Tesfatsian. So Master, what do you look at along your journalism path and say to yourself, man, I really had to starch myself up here to be young professional guy because uh, you've gone a different route now in storytelling, but you very much came up through a traditional, this is the way the beat writer comes up and gets his journalism credentials way. Yeah, it's, it's, the idea of going back to that seems so foreign and that it even existed at one point. Uh, only reason why I remember is because I Google myself sometimes and there's some of those cheesy ass pictures of me and sunk in glasses and the polo shirts that I was wearing. Um, but I was only wearing those because I didn't have anything else to wear. <laughs> you know, like all my other clothes were, quote unquote, deemed unprofessional in the workplace, uh, in a newsroom or in a, in a a practice field, which was crazy because the owners and the coaches are wearing sweatpants. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's the thing that always sticks out is my clothing, my attire. Um, the, the idea of, of what I had to do for someone to deem me as professional. Well, that's, that's where the most obvious of whitewashing in the mainstream media happens. Correct. Like you were trying to fit into the type of this is how, because sports writing and sports storytelling has so few people who look like you, your age, your interests. So you were trying to fit into whatever the look was, or you were forced to really, you didn't have a yeah, choice. I didn't have a choice. Like I, I, I knew nobody in the industry. I pulled out six figures on loans to get into this industry. Uh, you know, put my, my credit score on the line, my parents' credit score on the line uh, to, to try and make something happen of, of this profession. I don't, I don't feel like I had a choice. I feel like the margin of error that I had was so narrow compared to everyone else because of how privileged this industry is. And so for me, man, it was like trying to understand everything to the T at, at like the letter of the law. But I always knew in the back of my mind if I had the opportunity, because uh, I always had this idea in the back of my mind that this thing could end tomorrow. And if it did, you just had to go back home in Dallas, Irving, Texas, and just be comfortable with the idea that you tried it, you attempted it, it didn't work out, but you can be at peace that you need man, to try Man, man, what a big swing, though, as a dream. Like, tell people that story, the parts of the story, the idea of taking out loans, because this is the difference in terms of, and I'm a Hispanic, but how easy the path was for me versus how difficult the path was for you. Tell the people, like, that is a big swing you're taking. I'm going to go six figures on loans, and I'm going to try and take this path, telling sports stories. It started from not even knowing this path existed. I was so naive to the idea that people got paid to talk about sports 
that my senior high school, my teacher, Mr. Jackson, sat me down probably about September, October. He's like, all right, man, so what are you going to do, man? I'm like, shit, I don't know, man. I said, here's here's the two plans I have. Um, either I can become a comedian. Uh, that was the time in which Dave Chappelle just walked away from Comedy Central. But him passing up on that helped me understand, like, oh, damn, black people get paid $50 million to just make some jokes. Like, I may not be Dave Chappelle funny, but I make some people laugh in the classroom. So, you know, I can hit up some small southern towns and scrap up like eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. But for me, that would be more than what my parents are making combined. Probably double the amount of what my parents were making combined at the time. So for me, I was like, that's that's cool. Like, I can make that work and I, I can live a good life making 80, 90K. And then my other option was joining the military because, you know, growing up in Texas, they, they come to your high schools with the with the Hummers and, and our teachers tell us that, that the only way you can get outside of, of the cafeteria to go outside is to go hang out with the military recruits. So you end up being good buddies with them. You start bonding and then you realize senior year, they're like, hey, so you ready to sign yet or what? <laughs> you know, and all your friends are doing it. And you realize, obviously, with the educational opportunities, but it just never felt right for me because like my dad fought in the war. I don't know if I've really ever shared this before, but uh, yeah, he, he fought for the war for, for independence for, for his country in Eritrea. And, um, you know, he took a bullet for the chest for his country and seeing the, the effects of war on a daily basis in your old household, it makes it very apparent that that's something not, that you don't want to do. You know what I'm saying? And and I'm grateful that he, he did that. And I'm grateful that, you know, he was able to help fight and, and gain independence for, for Eritrea and that. But the casualties of war, you know, whether it is PTSD, the mental effects of that, it does a lot. And for me, I didn't want to pass that down already as it was to my kids, because I felt like I was, which I don't have any at the time, but just understanding in that moment, whatever that was that the cause effect of war that a soldier goes through and comes back home with was something for me that I did not want to pass down to another generation that had to try and unpack that as well. So you're in a situation where you're sort of trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to do something here in order to earn money that is going to feel desperate. I'm either going to fight or I'm going to make people laugh. And so how do you end up where you end up and where do the six-figure loans come into play? Because you were chasing yeah, yeah. the comedy route or because you took a detour? Now, so I'm, I'm telling this to my, my teacher, and obviously I'm taking those routes because, you know, the other routes I thought were athlete, athletics, but I blew my knee out sophomore year of high school. Didn't think that, feel like that was God telling me not to play sports. You know, you stole a couple of things from the mall here there, you know what I'm saying? Just mischievous kids, you know, doing just some blue-collar stuff around the city, but never something that I wanted to pursue is like, because I always felt like there was an end game to that, that it, it never was going to end well in terms of, move around the streets like that. So my teacher was like, yo, you talk about sports all the time. Like, why don't you just become a sports writer? And I was like, people get paid for that? Because again, going back to the naive idea of the environment, which I grew up in, it was always presented to you as fame or fortune. It was never this idea of you can have both, you know? And so when I saw who I saw on the TV screens, like on ESPN, which was playing in the background as we're having this conversation, it's just all former athletes. And they're all black men that are former athletes. And in my mind, I was like, oh, they're just doing that to just remain in the limelight. You know what I'm saying? They, they still want that fame. But he's like, nah, people get paid to do this. And for me, it's just kind of like, was just an eye-opening experience. Because, I mean, I mean, I grew up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I used to get in trouble all the time in technology, in my technology class, because I'd be on ESPN. You know what I'm saying? Reading Page Two, reading Bo, reading Jamil, reading Bill Simmons. And How old? Uh, How my, old were you? Uh, middle school. So this was like, shit. <laughs> Sixth grade, but like sports has been involved for me since I was five. You know, it's just, it's always been served as like a great outlet to kind of cope with the environment that you're in. You know, it's just great escapism for, you know, everything that was going around, on around you. And, you know, obviously growing up in Texas, it's, it's, you know, three F's, you know, faith, family, and football. So you end up being 
especially as a first generation American, you know what I'm saying? My parents aren't from this country and understanding the environment which I grew up in, it was very easy to see why sports became so pretty much the focal point and center point of my life. So what has to happen though, for you to go from there, how much time before, okay, I'm going to go six figures in debt chasing this thing. <laughs> it, it was when I realized you could actually make some money on it. And what's funny, I didn't, I never looked at like what the, like what the average salary of this was. Like once he told me people get paid dues, I'm like, cool. So say less. Yeah. You can't, you <laughs> I, see, you can't follow stuff like that for money. Like that's, that's yeah. what makes you happy with what you're doing professionally, that you made the choices you made. And then the the happy or the money happens by accident on the back end. You're just like, wait, I can make some money. That means you're telling me I got a chance to do this for, for my life. I can tell stories for the next 40 years because I'm going to figure out how to evolve in storytelling. Exactly, man. And so my, my sister, my oldest sister was the only one who went to college, graduated college before me at the time. And she had went to University of North Texas, which is 30 minutes away. I felt like I had to get out of my environment to get a better understanding of the world around me. So I didn't go to a local school. I ended up looking at what are the best schools in the country when it comes to journalism. And I picked ASU, Arizona State, because I had to think of it very pragmatically from a logical standpoint. It's considered one of the best schools in the country when it comes to journalism. It was a brand new building, a couple of years old at the time. So I knew the technological advances inside that building were going to be top notch compared to other schools that were a lot more older. And the most important thing for me was after I talked to a lot of people about how to break into this industry, the internship opportunities and networking kept popping up. And Arizona State is located in Phoenix, Arizona, which was the only school that I was looking at that had every major pro sports team within that city. And it had a major media market where they had, you know, whether it was a newspaper or major local stations there that would provide opportunities to either get jobs or to meet people within this industry so I could get a better understanding of how this industry works. All right. But now, Master, here's the thing. Like, I would have advised no one of your age at that time seeing what was coming in print media. I would have advised exactly no one, young person, go chase this as a career. No, this is about <laughs> to die. Be careful. And so now it's 2009 too. So this was like, you know what I'm saying? This was right in the middle well, of the recession. It's, it's dumb. Okay. It is what you chose is dumb just from the perspective of you have to be pretty special to be able to turn that all around as a young person, because that was way late to the game. Like that is a, I wouldn't tell I seen the success. Okay. I've lived the success of, my father fighting me on becoming a sports writer because he came to this country so I would make an engineer out of myself or a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, my dad, yeah. Uh, and, and so I like I was a disappointment to him because no money could possibly be made in this business doing this. And if you told me right now that I'm having a boy born into the world or a girl and should they choose this as a career? Let's say I was having a kid at 2009. No, don't, don't, don't. <laughs> Don't do that. And I've seen it work. And I would be like, do not try that. You, this is a I, I bad idea. I don't think idea. I would tell my kids right now to get in this industry either. And it's crazy to say now, because now I'm in, I'm one of the privileged people where I have the access and the like the understanding and the knowledge now. But even then I would still advise my kid, do what you feel like you would enjoy, but also just be very smart in understanding the, the challenges that come ahead with what you have to deal with. Cause I was never the most social media person in the world. I was the last person on MySpace out of my friends group. I was one of the last people on Facebook. Okay. 2009, I get to Arizona State and everyone's, all the professors saying, oh, you got to get on Twitter now. You know what I'm saying? That's what all the news writers use now. You got to get on Twitter. You know, this was the time when Shaq finally made Twitter pop in and everybody started tweeting all these different things. And it was a great way to get information access that, that we see obviously today. But 
I was hardly ever using it. I was just using it more casually just to like talk with my friends group. You know what I'm saying? But it eventually had to keep growing and evolving into which I had to use it in a professional standpoint. But then when I became a beat writer, I was using that thing 18, 19 hours a day because I don't know who's breaking what at what time. Oh my and God. Now but how how, how unpleasant was that? How unhappy were you? Because I remember I've told the story before here of like sobbing in the Miami Herald bathroom at midnight one night, just because like I wasn't equipped to keep up with it. And it becomes that OCD of you've got to work 20 hours a day and you can never catch up. Everyone's out there. I can't even imagine how, how much that sucked. You know, you're breaking in 21 years old. And you're like, what the hell? Like, you can do this because you're like, I don't have a choice. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're literally thriving off of survival. You know what I'm saying? Your survival instincts and tactics are kicking in. We're like, if this is what I got to do, cool. This is what I got to do. You know what I'm saying? And I worked with a lot of like very, very established, like incredible writers on the beat. Like T.R. Sullivan was one of them. That was the understanding of just like, hey, I don't have enough information in the way that they do. So I understand they're going to be carrying the load quite a bit. But I knew I could overcompensate that by always making sure that I was on Twitter. You know what I'm saying? Or always making sure I was on social media and checking out what the athletes are posting. And if there's anything relevant, then I could tweet that out or I could post that out. I feel like that was my way of contributing to the team in some way that that brought on a new element. You know, instead of everyone waking up at eight in the morning and realizing like, oh, an athlete was going off at like midnight or something like that or just posted something that you know, posted a video that would be cool for our audience to see, like, I'm up, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm up kicking it with, I'm in the club, you know what I'm saying? I'm probably checking it right there and screenshotting that joint and then having that file ready to go for the morning time or just, you know, making a blog out of it, you know what I'm saying? Like, like that's how I felt like I had to kind of break my way through until I can get to places and positions where I understood how the game was being played. So what can you tell us about uh, the way that the game is played? Because I believe I told you this story when I met you of, uh, Edger and James coming out of the University of Miami mm-hmm. and looking around and trying to tell his story one time, one place, and he looked at the landscape. And I'm nothing like Edger and James at all, but I would do because I was just a Hispanic guy from Miami and he didn't have anyone else to choose from. Have you found in the doing of untold stories that you get a different black athlete because he just doesn't see and hear from people like you very often? It's usually guys who look more like me from a different generation, older, asking questions uh, by their locker. Yeah, that, that part has been I think I've been looking for the fulfilling part of this career in this pathway besides pursuing a passion, a dream a childhood idea that you loved or this industry that you loved and being able to work in it. And I think being able to share these sto- stories in a very authentic way uh, has been the most fulfilling part of this entire journey because it takes me back to like 11, 12 year old me who maybe didn't think he could get in this industry. Maybe he didn't even think about this industry. You know what I'm saying? But wanted to do something with his career, wanted to do something with his life. Everyone's always talks about what do you want to do when you grow up? It's always an idea that everyone has in their mind, even if they don't have anything in their mind about what they want to do. And displaying the level of transparency that I think you hear from from athletes speaking in these interviews, I always think back on like, what would a 12-year-old me would have loved to hear from these athletes to give me a better understanding of what to expect. When we peel back this layer, and it's not all this stuff that you see that, you know, props them up on this pedestal. And it's not just the 200 yards. It's more so understanding that these people are representation of a culture, of a people. And it's ingrained in their identity beyond just being athletes, that they, they represent an entire community. They represent maybe sometimes an entire state, an entire region, uh, an entire race, you know, and and I think that's the beauty within sports that I've been able to find is that what other place are we able to enter in into a workforce, into an industry and being able to talk to so many different people who have a common goal, but they come from so many different backgrounds. 
Like there ain't no tech reporters that gets the opportunity to just go into Apple every day and go talk to their workers. You know what I'm saying? And 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 I think that for me, when I started realizing that in that kind of way, it, it gave me a better understanding of what this was and how I could pursue this in a much much different way. That wasn't simply just oh damn, you're super talented. Like yeah, no shit. Everyone can see someone's talented. Like Patrick Mahomes. Like you're not a genius for saying Patrick Mahomes is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. You're just not. And there's another way in which you can take it in which, you know, the analytical side has, the nerds have, which, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, my forte in terms of going that deep to the numbers because I think you're missing a lot in terms of what you see visually within that. No matter how many times they try to say that they're not, you are, you know, like you're missing out on the fact that running backs are, there's an incredible era of running backs going on right now because you feel like they're, they're being devalued and shouldn't be a first round draft pick. You're missing out on Derrick Henry. You're missing out on Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, Saquon Barkley, et cetera. And I don't ever want to be in that position where I could see greatness but I'm ignoring it because the numbers don't back it up, you know? So that side of it wasn't necessarily the most appealing to me, but you know, the relatability aspect always was like, I, if there's anything I always had was a, a great deal of curiosity growing up and being able to spark that curiosity to, into having great conversations with people. It's kind of always been my thing. That's my comfort zone. And being able to translate that onto athletes that people look up to that even at some point that I looked up to, you know, we're talking about guys that, that are retired now on the show that, you know, I, I grew up, imitating in the backyard after they made a crazy catch or T.O. doing a touchdown dance. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all of these different things that for me, I've enjoyed because now I can have a conversation, but I'm still using the core ethics of journalism that I learned, you know, like that, that part of it necessarily hasn't gone away. It's just evolved in the way that I've done it. It's always been this idea of making sure that I understood the basics, but I could put my own spin on it because the people who created the basics did not look like me. You know what I'm saying? Like they, like this, this world and this industry was not created with me in mind, with you in mind with women in mind, you know what I'm saying? And so understanding that aspect of these things and understanding where we're at society right now and how things are evolving, where all of these things that were made with a certain race in mind, with a certain gender in mind, with a certain privilege in mind, can no longer operate in that same way as we try to push for more diversity, as we try to push for more inclusion, and as literally the demographics of this country has shifted considerably since these things were created. And so how do you handle all of that? If you're telling the audience, okay, here are the seminal moments where I learned that I could break free of the construct or that the construct was working against me, that, that I'm not, if not welcome here, that this thing's not built to serve me. It's something I battle with every day, man. I really do. It's like the yin and yang from the joy I find, but understanding like the struggle that exists because oftentimes it feels like you're on an island, you know? And you're not sure if there's going to be one thing that will be the reason why that fear that you ultimately have at this thing in tomorrow ends up actually happening, you know, because it's just so unorthodox. It is. And I've enjoyed it, though. Like, that's the thing is that, like, I have to find time which I understand and, 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 and acknowledge my fears, you know what I'm saying, within that. But then also still understanding that that same confident and borderline stubborn mindset that I've had that got me to this point there's a lot of confidence within that. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm 29 years old now and I, I spent, I've done five years, five or six years beat writing at two of the top five papers in the country. I was a senior writer for three years now, writing stories on some of the biggest names in sports. And now I'm two seasons in on a, a, a TV show that is averaging 2.5 million views per episode. And that's not to mention all the other things that I'm working on right now like script writing that I'm doing now and trying to enter into the Hollywood space, uh, trying to get into the Twitch side and being able to do all of that within like an eight year span, you know, or seven, eight year span. It's just like, even sometimes in my mind, I have to take a step back to just kind of understand what I'm doing because it's not going to be validated by others in the same way that it will be if I would have gone, 
you know, the traditional route and been a B writer for 10 more years and then gone up as a columnist and then eventually became the face or something like that. It's such a different path that it's hard for people to understand where exactly you're going because there's no one that can really compare you to. And so I have to make sure I spend those times to just kind of validate myself. And I've been working on that a lot with my therapist in terms of just talking better with myself on that and just making sure I recognize and and, and appreciate the moment and being present because I feel like I'm always so forward thinking in terms of what I can do tomorrow, not just enjoying and appreciating what I did today. So what do you mean with your therapist? Not to get too deep into that part of it, but you, you need help with what? Sort of appreciating that what you're doing as you're doing is a source of joy as opposed to worried what's going to happen five years from now. I got to keep achieving. I got to be fueled by ambition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I very much am fueled by ambition, passion, man. Like if, if I ain't in it, you don't see it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's, it's very obvious for me. And I've, I've tried to find ways to mask it in different ways. And I, I think that's why sometimes I have like a resting bitch face. Cause it's like, either I turn it on or off, you know what I'm saying? But it, it's so obvious when I'm, I'm very passionate about something, you know what I'm saying? And so, and why do you need to mask it? I, maybe that's just some industry shit, man. It's just you end up realizing certain rooms and the games that people play and stuff like that and the politics and stuff. It's just it, it makes it hard because you're always understanding that the passion can easily be turned as the angry black man. You know what I'm saying? And and understanding like how that idea that has been built up long before even your parents came to this country. You have a certain amount of these instances where, again, like you have the creative differences, like you said, and, and it's you know, you're very passionate about what you believe in. So is the other person. And. You know, you're getting heat about the stuff, but you're always wondering in the back of your mind, like, damn, like, how many of those can I go through before someone starts, you know what I'm saying, creating a perception or idea of you? It, they may not necessarily understand where it's coming from, you know, because all they were see you, is were you Were you angry, black man? Like, that is that how you were being perceived just because you were passionate about making stuff? Sometimes I always wonder that. I don't know, because it's not necessarily me, you know what I'm saying? Like, in terms of, I, I don't know how people perceive me sometimes like that, but there are moments in which I do wonder that. I think, I think there are moments in which, I mean, a lot of... I would say just black people in general always have to kind of keep a, an eye on those kind of things because it's, I mean, it, it's not necessarily, no matter how many times that I'm cool with me speaking up, you know what I'm saying? And like, I'm very confident and, and understanding in terms of what I am. At the end of the day, like this all could be just taken up from underneath you. This joy that you find can literally be taken up all underneath you because of some misguided perceptions. And that's the way the game is played. That's just the way the industry is. And it's something that you're kind of always keeping a mindful eye on while also understanding that, you know, the risk that you take is it enters you into more and more uncharted territory where that idea of not knowing what you do or who you are, who they can compare you to also just kind of opens you up, you know what I'm saying? To all kinds of different I don't know, shots or opportunities, whatever the case may be. So it's something, of course, man, I, I keep in the back of my mind and, and try to be aware. I think as the older I grow, I'm more mindful of it because you become less naive with your experiences and you start to understand more and more how the game is really played. And as you start getting that realization and understanding with that, and you start to look at your past actions in terms of how you was moving and stuff like that, then you start to wonder like, oh man, like I had my blinders on this whole time just trying to get to this goal. You know what I'm saying? Of, of making sure I could provide generational wealth for my family. You know what I'm saying? Making sure I can enjoy a passion of mine and, and, and being able to push the boundaries and limits of those. You know what I'm saying? Doing things that we've just never seen before. And while in the pursuit of that, you're not aware of all these different things until you look up and you start to realize like what is all around you. And I think that idea is more so for me, something that probably since I got to New York was something I was a little bit more mindful of uh, because it, it's so apparent in New York. You can't avoid these so many different media circles that exist in New York. And um, that was something I, yeah, I talked a lot with my therapist about that because I'd, I'd never necessarily wanted to be within that 
and conform to that idea where that I ended up moving some, simply out of fear. But I also wanted to make myself more aware of these things because ultimately you being yourself is going to be a more difficult and challenging pathway. And quite honestly, as the older you get, you know what I'm saying? The less and less that you have in terms of your energy or, or your, your bandwidth or your time to really deal with all that bullshit. So I think that was more so kind of the balance of which I was learning and understanding, which is how can I be aware of these things while also still being able to stick into the, the ideas and passion and invention that I have and, and not trying to allow these other factors to extinguish that. Because without that, I don't feel like I am me. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I would guess, and I don't know, that this is the most fearless professional version of you, which isn't to say that there isn't fear there, because it sounds like you're motivated or fueled a little bit by fear, just that it can all disappear from one moment to the next. But uh, was there a moment at all or a time where you realized the freedom of soaring above that fear? Oh, wait, I don't have to be this kind of afraid anymore. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was one in particular. I think when I was on the Vikings beat, probably about two years into my career is when I started to really feel it. And it was something I always wanted to do in the back of my mind, just be yourself. But I, I never knew if I would have the opportunity to do so because I just saw so many people conform to respectability politics that for me, that's a whole different other language. Like in terms of the environment which I grew up in, like respectability politics, what the fuck is that? Like no one speaks, like everyone speaks authentically to themselves. Everyone has a lot of passion in the way that they talk and everyone speaks what's on the top of their mind. So this idea of understanding the language and the battles that go on in the workforce, like that was something no college teaches you. To be honest, like no mentor really teaches you because it, it's it's so complicated to even express. You really enter in and you don't understand like what these battles truly are until you, you know, the bullets start flying. And it is as simple as I realizing I'm a black person and this entire system was not built for me. It was me and Larry Fitzgerald Sr., the only two black people covering the Vikings. And I was the only one that was there on a daily basis. And I'm around nothing but white people. Like that experience is still one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've ever had. I would show up minutes before practice and bounce as soon as I could so I could finish all my work at the crib because I just did not like being in that workroom. I didn't like what it was doing to me. I didn't like how I was conforming to this. I didn't like how it was making me talk. It was uncomfortable. It was. It wasn't even worth my energy to, like, it was at times just to, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, be present and not just, like, but it got to a point, man, I was just putting the headphones on the entire time. Like, you can even look at practice pictures in, in the past and, You'll see me on the sidelines with a notebook in my hand and headphones on because it was just I just I just wanted to lock in. And it, in many ways, it reminded me of the escapism that football already had served to me literally as my job. Where I'm, I'm on the practice field. And I'm just trying to lock in on practice because I'm trying to escape this reality of, of what I see when I go back to that, that media room. Which just makes it worse, right? Because now you're the guy with the headphones who's aloof and uh, arrogant and whatever else. 
Exactly, man. So it's it's like for me, it it was understanding all of that, and I think also for me growing up, like I'm realizing it now, how much more of a of a people pleaser I, I am, and especially within my own family, holding everybody down, make sure everybody good, and kind of always having to play that role. Being in this position where I was in a space where I didn't realize that at the time, that's what my like very much so how I operated, and being in a space where I was just very uncomfortable. And not putting in the effort to try and change not only the uncomfort that I feel, but also, you know, evolving the room into something that is a little bit more diverse and inclusive. I think that part was, was just as exhausting as being in that space. Because, like I said before, it's hard. Like, you'll know straight up, like, if I'm in it or not. I'm in this space that I want to be in because I enjoy and love what I do. But I can't fully be in it because the environment in which I am in, I simply don't like and how freeing was that, though? How freeing was it to get on the other side of the fear of, no, I'm going to be myself here. And look, I've just made a conscious decision. I am not going to spend the rest of my life with respectability politics, trying to fit in the starched box of whatever a sports writer is supposed to look like. I'm going to choose me and furthermore, my identity, my people's identity, my parents' identity. I'm going to, no, I'm going to be me. Actually, I know the moment when it happened. I got hired by the Washington Post. You got to understand, nobody in my family ever grew up reading the Washington Post, except when there's a story about Eritrean geopolitical issues. And even then, my parents were very skeptical of American media and they'd read Al Jazeera. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way it is on the other side of, of the world, excuse me. And so being there and seeing everyone in college growing up to like, oh, I can't wait to, that'd be dope to work there. That'd be a dream job. And I'm there like 24 years old. And I think I might have been the youngest beat writer to ever cover that, that beat at the time. And I see all the names of all the people that I grew up watching on TV who came out of that newspaper and some of those who came off of that beat. And it was such a surreal moment, man. And I, I appreciate everyone who played a role in that experience because that provided me so much confidence. And I remember my, this shows you just kind of how like I was, how I'd be working. Like my last day at the Star Tribune was a Friday. Okay. I spent Saturday, Sunday packing up my apartment, drove Monday out of Minneapolis, got there Tuesday night, started Wednesday. Cause it was like week two of the NFL season. And I already felt like I was behind cause I didn't have training camp and all these different things. And, and I was like, man, I got to jump in on this thing and spend it. Cause every single day that I'm wasting right now is an opportunity, which I don't get to know the people within this, this organization, the people within this industry, who they are, how they operate, what they do, what are the issues, what are the areas in which they succeed, all the things that you wonder and, and your curiosity just wonders while you're on a beat. And I remember my first day when I got there, I get there to practice. I'm wearing what I typically wear. Like I told you before, I would wear the polo, jeans, you know what I'm saying? So I pulled up, I had a Hugo Balls polo, black polo, had some black jeans on, and I had some Yeezys, some 350 Turtle Doves that I just dropped like a couple months ago. Joints was, they still cold, and I still got them to this day. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, having the professional look, but then you look at my feet and you're like, all right, cool, I see a little something, something different, okay? The next day, I pulled up in a black V-neck t-shirt, some jorts that I personally cut myself that I would rock in the summertime that had the little strings hanging on from the bottom. You know what I'm saying? They were just, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I cut them in a certain way at the time. I just like rocking my jorts in, in that kind of way. Uh, I wore this backwards hat. Uh, it was a Pat Tillman Pat's run hat that I got uh, from the good folks at the Pat Tillman Foundation. But I wore that joint backwards and I put some J's on. I think it was a taxi twills. Jesus master. And you know, and I remember everyone looking at me like, yo, what the fuck are you doing? And it ended up being the subject of conversation with other people on the beat in within the organization that were like, yo, man, like, I don't know if the coach is going to respect you doing that stuff, man. You know what I'm saying? I don't know, I don't know who's going to tell you any, any any stories or any any sourcing, like, you know, dressing up the way that you dress like that. 
And you, know you and you know somewhere within you, you know, wait a minute, I'm going to walk into this locker room and these guys are going to want to tell me their stories because I'm a little closer to them than everything that surrounds them. I'm not a fucking robot, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not a robot. Like to other people it was like, oh, you know what I'm saying? He's just trying to dress down. He's just trying to be swaggy, trying to get fits off. For me, it was like, no, this was already in my closet. Like, I'm not going to go to Old Navy to go buy them little dusty ass shirts that every the sports writer wears just to fit in with y'all. You know what I'm saying? Because even before that, I spent time, you know, in baseball. And you want to talk about people who are just not kept up. Holy Baseball shit. writers are the worst oh, dresses holy of all time. Shit. Holy shit, though. You in baseball. Like, you couldn't have I, felt. You said you felt alone with the Vikings. Like, baseball. Oh, oh my God. Baseball is a whole different story. Because at Arizona State, you know, you're right there with spring training. And so I would always do this thing where um, when spring training came around, I always try to find ways to get, like, freelance opportunities and internships and stuff. There was at one point, actually, um, Recipes Richard Dirt, the late great Richard Dirt. After my internship with them, he provided an opportunity for me to cover the Rangers team for like two or three weeks in Surprise, Arizona. And y'all, I skipped like two or three weeks of school, you know, <laughs> doing the bare minimum in my head just to like, you know, get these like $200 day checks, but also just to get these reps and these opportunities. And through that, again, it just exposed me to a whole different world where you, you got dudes, you know what I'm saying, with their toes out, open toe sandals, you know what I'm saying, wearing some little chubby, like them little sky blue chubby shorts and just this old Navy shirt that probably ain't been washed in days. And I'm like, oh, hell no. Like, I, there's, 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 there's no way in hell that you telling me I got to dress up in this polo. At the time, I was wearing like a polo with some slacks and a belt. Sometimes I wear dress shoes to a spring training game just to feel respected. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's when it first hit me. Like, what the hell am I doing? Like, like we playing two different games right now. <laughs> you know, like, you looking sloppy as hell. But they telling me, you, you, you the dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it threw me off completely. It's one of those things that, like, again, when you realize how small your margin of error is, you can't just jump off of your instinct like that and just be like, oh, no, fuck that shit, man. I'm just going to dress it the way I do. Like, you have to be, like, it, very much a lot of these things have to be very calculated, where you have to get a great sample size of data and understanding and of observation. You know what I'm saying? When you see this happen pop up in Surprise, Arizona, then you go to Seattle, Washington for an internship. Then you come back to Arlington, Texas. Then you're in Minneapolis. And you're like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Like, time out. Like, let, let's let's take a step back and let's let's reassess what the hell really going on here. And when I got to D.C., it was like, yo, I'm at the Washington Post now. Like, you got two ways you can take this thing, okay? You can go down the traditional route, you know what I'm saying? Do the try the truth method. Knock it down on the Washington Post beat. Put your suits on and everything like that. And, you know, maybe that, that leads to something at ESPN or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I understood that was available for me, but I also understood that this disruption will allow me an opportunity to do something completely different, that I will be able to look myself in the mirror every single day and appreciate myself and appreciate the person, the version I see, because my growth was not based off of my job. My growth was based off of my experiences. My lifestyle was based off of my experiences. And that side of me, I was very much still trying to protect because if I lost that, I felt like I lost my identity. And I just ended up becoming another robot in this industry. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 
what's the backstory of how your family got here and uh and what life was like before you guys got here yeah man um yeah my parents from eritrea country in east africa uh, right along the red sea you know in between you know north of ethiopia somalia right there in the horn of africa and um you know my parents both grew up in, like i mean we talk about poverty here obviously but it's a third world country you know what i'm saying so uh, like my, my mom dropped out of middle school um to help provide for her family because it, it you know they just need some some financial support at the time. Um, my dad was actually really smart, but you know there was a 30 year war breaking out with Eritrea and Ethiopia for uh, the fight of their own independence. And so my dad ended up fighting for that war, took a bullet to the chest. If it wasn't a member of this guerrilla infantry that pulled him out and stopped the bleeding, you know, he, he would have bled to death. And so from there, uh, my dad fled to Sudan where he met my mom at a refugee camp in Sudan. And very much so the base of the marriage is all survival, you know? So you can kind of understand from that point on, how, you know, you're, you're born into this idea of survival, you know, as, as they come to this country, like $200 to their name, you're growing up in section eight. So you obviously as a kid, like, like and, and I think that was a part in which I enjoyed, unfortunately, because, you know, the idea of how sports is being used for black people, a way to improve your social economic status, the relatability was there. You know what I'm saying? And just understanding like how much joy you found in those moments. But then later on, you're st- as you find joy in that and you're doing something that you've loved as a child, talking about sports or playing sports, this idea that you start to really understand the environment which you grew up in. But you look back at it so firmly because you were so naive. And those were the, you know, the good days where, you know, you were Section 8 just playing football all the time, you know what I'm saying? Somebody blaring the Usher album was playing some DJ screw with, you know, some Texas music out there just outside of their apartment like it ain't nothing. Like, you, you think about those times and that, that communal bond that existed within there. And as you get older, you start to realize how far away you are from that and how different that is. And as you start to enter into the world, how difficult it is to replicate that. Well, the degree of difficulty on everything you're talking about here is, uh, yeah, it's the opposite of privilege. Like the idea that you would climb over all the things that you needed to climb over from there is a bit crazy. And I don't know if I were your dad or your mom and 14 year old, you was coming up and saying, this is the path for me out of all of this, I would not have advised it. Oh, my, my parents didn't. Like, do you know how much time my dad would spend with me just watching, like, I would watch Good Morning America. Like, I would listen to him every morning. We would listen to, to NPR. We would sit down, like, after I came back from school, I would watch cartoons and I would spend time, like, two or three hours doing homework. And then, like, about 6.30 or 7 o'clock, we would watch Wheel of Fortune. And then we would watch, because, you know, I, I see a lot of people who always tweet about watching Jeopardy and stuff. We couldn't watch Jeopardy because my parents didn't understand any of the questions. So the way we would all gather around, we could watch a little fortune and just start guessing letters and words and stuff like that. It was it was a lot more for an immigrant family. It was it was it was much more of a communal bond for that. And then afterwards, we would flip on the business news, you know what I'm saying, to catch up on stocks and stuff like that. And my dad very much wanted me to be an entrepreneur or, or get into business and being able to own my own things. Cause as I'm sure you can relate to, you know, the, the burden that the 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 immigrant child always carries with him or her, excuse me, I don't want to make it you know gender specific, is this idea that you know, you don't want your parents' sacrifices to die in vain. And my dad was so keen on just owning property. You know, we came out of Section 8. He was kind of one, you know, we was in this Eritrean community. He was one of the first people to really go branch out and go buy his own house. You know what I'm saying? It was just, you know, a couple blocks away from, from the Section 8 that we grew up in that we still live to to this day. And my parents will never sell that house. They'll never get out of the house. They'll never get rid of that house because of my dad's a symbol of pride. Like, they tell me the American dream is buying property, you know what I'm saying, and, and owning a home. And he was able to accomplish that. And he found so much pride in it that he wanted to instill that into me. And 
I wasn't hearing it. <laughs> you know, like I, I was, you know, very much into sports, like very much into hip hop. And, you know, here's the thing that was so different about, you know, the era in which the generation which I grew up in, millennials and Gen Z, is that now you got the influence of the internet. You know what I'm saying? And and the internet, as we know, is a gift and a curse, but I can, you know, wholeheartedly say that if it wasn't for the internet, I wouldn't be here. And and that idea is as annoying as it is to see what the hell's going on right now in, in society and how this tribalism exists because of the internet, because of social media, it's still just a mind-blowing idea of how the internet was able to influence me in terms of, like I said, checking out ESPN. Or, man, I was on message boards for, like, sports radio shows in high school and also saw message boards on, like, hip-hop artists, you know what I'm saying, in high school, like, ninth grade. You know, like, I'm 14 years old, don't know a damn thing about the world, but I'm talking to all these other people at the time, 30, 35-year-old people in their 20s, too, that have a completely different grasp on this thing and very much seeing the evolution of that into, like, what Twitter is now and how, you know, that that relatability that I still see that maybe other people don't because of how early I was able to get in that space, but also how influential those spaces were in terms of just understanding, like, the things that I enjoy, the passions that I have. And when I felt that passion from continuously pursuing the things that I enjoyed, how much more fulfilling it felt for me than trying to do something that my parents are trying to force down home. Master, good talking to you. Good catching up and congratulations on the success. You took uh, the road less traveled. And I'm glad you got off the path because you were on the road hey. You were on the road too often uh, traveled <laughs> and you took a detour. I, I don't know if we have enough time to tell the story, but like three years ago, it was like maybe the day after uh, my 420 piece dropped where I smoked weed with a couple of athletes, NFL, NBA athletes, and they were telling me how, uh, you know, how they smoked either in the league or how it should be legalized uh, in terms of its usage. I remember after it dropped, obviously I was in Miami at the time, uh, you know, for something that was going on, I was kicking on vacation and, you know, hit up Amani Jones, shout out to him, who got me in touch with you because I, I knew there was something else available for me and trying to figure out how to get in there. I was just trying, I was in a, I, I was in a state of just wanting information and you taking the time out, you know what I'm saying? And, and, People like Mike allow me inside, you know, the cubicle that you guys have in that space, just see how you guys do what you do. And you taking time after, you know, one show to just sit down, smoke a cigar, just tell me about a lot of things. And this idea of becoming the anti-establishment within the establishment has always stuck out with me. And I think it's something that has has provided me a lot of guidance and advice that made sure that I didn't take the, the path that everyone else takes, man. So I just want to make sure I take the time out to just thank you for that conversation, man. I appreciate it so much. And I don't think I could be here if it wasn't for advice that you gave me on that day. Wow. That's very, uh, that's very nice because it, I didn't realize at the time. I mean, I remember you looked a little more formal than you do now. And I thought, uh, to myself, yeah, I didn't know what the hell you going to think. Like yeah, I never met you. That's, <laughs> like, funny. I, I, that's funny. No, that's funny though, because thinking back on it, I'm like, this guy feels like he's sort of stuck a little bit in this shirt and that he's got a, a real cool perspective to share. And he just needs a, a little bit of nudge or encouragement, I guess, that doing it differently is allowed, you know? And I appreciate that because people like you, people like Bo, Michael Smith, Jamel Hill, like the names, countless others that have really allowed me to embrace the individuality and identity that I present. I've turned my my weakness into the biggest strength that I have. And it's something that for me, everyone always tries to establish their own lane where you can't be replaceable, that you're not an interchangeable part inside this industry. And understanding my strength was all along what I had in me the entire time. There's a lot of beauty in that. And there's, there's a lesson in that I think everyone could take away from that, that being able to turn that idea that people may view you as a negative for what you are in your life and understanding that that could be the strong suit that really just kind of distinguishes you and creates a, a career that I could have never imagined, man. So thank you. 
Our thanks to Master Tesfatsian for joining us on South Beach Sessions. We want you to support all the Lebertard and Friends properties, but a special shout-out this week to Mystery Crate. It is for the diehards of this radio show. We were really excited by what they were able to do with Ron McGill last week. That sex and the animal show that he did at the zoo was always sold out. It was a big value. It was expensive. He retired it, but he did it for the diehards of the show, and it was a lot of fun. So please support Mystery Crate as well as South Beach Sessions and Stupidity. Next week on South Beach Sessions, we're going to talk to a death row inmate who spent nearly four decades in prison wrongly accused and finally got out. That's next week on South Beach Sessions. 